Well, it is so good to be with you today, worshiping wherever you may be. Thank you for letting us be a part of your life. It's just a, an honor and a privilege, especially in these times. It is, as Joe said earlier, kind of crazy times. And uh, we're just, I'm thankful that we live in the day and age that we do, where we have the technology, we, ha- we have the ability uh, to somehow connect with you. There was a time, that's not too long ago, when the average church just couldn't have done this. And, and so even with the few glitches we see now and then, I mean, I know I've been looking at churches all, all around throughout the week, seeing what they're doing. Uh, you know, obviously seeing the mega churches, the big churches are doing, they got some great production. But just seeing the average run-of-the-mill church, just the backbone of, of churches in our country, of our faith. You know, small churches, churches that are rural, uh, First Baptist churches of small towns, and just seeing what's going on and, and how they're finding ways to connect, and it's such a blessing. And, uh, you know, I, I, I look at this as opportunities, and, and God has provided in the midst of, you know, some tragedy and some difficulty opportunities for us to honor God and connect with people. I'm very thankful in so many ways for our country. Uh, you know, I, I pray for our president, I pray for our governor, I, I pray for our mayor. Uh, I'm thankful that our, our president and our governor have been so supportive of, of what we do as churches. Uh, you know, the president encouraging faith, encouraging us to worship. Our governor this week said some really encouraging things to churches, and so I'm thankful to them. But I'm especially thankful, obviously, to the Lord that he allows us uh, to just to worship together. And uh, so, you know, we think next week it's Easter. It's an exciting time. We celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. And sometimes we get the idea that, that the resurrection is to be celebrated, but the cross is somehow to be mourned, or that the cross is, is this sad part of, of our faith. But really, not only do we find victory in the resurrection, we find victory in the cross as well. We're in a series entitled Jesus on the Cross, the Seven Words of Christ. And, and what we're do, doing is looking at the seven statements Jesus made from the cross. Now, you know, uh, we started off, and, and as I kind of told you, the first three statements that he made all kind of occurred early at the cross uh, you know, within that first hour or so. The last four statements occur later at the cross. The first three we've seen already. We, we've looked at the, the forgiveness. We looked at the salvation. We looked at the love that Christ has. And uh, last week, we, uh, or two weeks ago, we saw the abandonment. And last week, we saw the suffering. And today, we come uh, to John 19. We've been there twice already. We come to John 19, 30, and we look at the victory. And uh, here's what verse 30 says. Therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished, and he bowed his head, and he gave up his spirit. So what I'd like to do today, this is what I really want you to see from the message today, and this is it. On the cross, Jesus won. And when Jesus won, we won. Sin was defeated, and all that was left, all that was left was the resurrection. On the cross, Jesus won, and when Jesus wins, we win. And all that's left now is the resurrection. So I'm going to have a couple things I want to share with you. And the first thing I want to share, the first thing I want you to see is really this, that at the cross, victory was certain. At the cross, victory was absolutely guaranteed. Uh, Way back during World War II, there's a few of you watching who were were children back then, maybe a little bit older. I don't know that we have anybody who actually served during World War II. If we did, God bless you. We, We appreciate what you did. But some of you remember how difficult it was back then. You know, really far worse than what we were experiencing is kind of the outlook at the time. And there was just massive war going on in two areas. And in 1941, America was, was kind of dragged into the war. We had tried to avoid it, but we couldn't by 1941. And when we got into the war, we really fought the war on, on two fronts. 
which was really hard to do. We, we were involved in the campaign over in the Pacific with, uh, with Japan, and then we were involved in the campaign over in Europe with, with uh, Germany and, and Italy against them. And, and we had to fight these two battles. And when we first entered the battle, the first entered the war, and things were, were difficult. I mean, Japan had devastated our Pacific fleet. It didn't look like we were going to be able to stop them. Germany was just entrenched in, in Europe with only Great Britain in the west and Russia on the east opposing them. And we came into this war. But well, what happened in the war on both sides, on both the Pacific and the Atlantic side, is there came an event, something occurred that turned the war in our favor. And when it turned it in our favor, really what happened is as long as America would be committed to pay the price, whatever that price was, it would be loss of life, loss of resources, but as long as we were going to be willing to pay that price, we would win. Victory was kind of certain. In the Pacific, it occurred in 1942 at the Battle of Midway. Once we won the Battle of Midway, as long as we were willing to pay the price, we would eventually beat the Japanese. In uh, the European conflict, it occurred in 1944 in June when we invaded the beaches of Normandy. And as long as we were, once we got to Normandy, as long as we were going to be willing to pay the price, uh, we were going to be able to defeat the Germans. Now, it didn't mean there weren't struggles ahead, but it just meant that what we had to offer, where we were, was so great that nothing would stop us if we would persevere. Now, I say that because we need to look at the cross as not a place of defeat. We need to look at the cross as that turning point, that, that absolute guarantee that we were going to be victorious, that Christ was going to be victorious. When Christ went to the cross and he made that decision, when he was willing to pay the price for us, nothing was going to stop him. And that's why it is so important that when we come to the words of Jesus, what we see him say is it is finished. Because here's the thing. In all of the New Testament, very few words are as significant as the words it is finished. Just very, very few. Uh, last week when we were talking uh, about the, the, the suffering of Jesus, we looked at the words, I thirst. And, and uh, one of the things I shared with you is that normally when I preach it is finished. I usually take the words, I, I thirst, it is finished together. They're both in John 19. They really go together. They're, they're kind of connected. And one of the things I, I shared with you uh, last week is that there were three times in verses 28, 29, and 30, when you put these two together, that we see something being finished or completed. Uh, I didn't go into detail last week because I was going to do it this week. But the, the basic word to finish something that is used is uh, the verb teleo in Greek, the noun is uh, telos, and it means to bring to an end. So last week we saw, for instance, uh, John writing that Jesus, knowing that all things had been accomplished or being completed, it, it's the same word as in the Greek as we see for it is finished, the exact same way. Later on, and, and John writes that uh, having done that, that, that Jesus to fulfill the scriptures or complete the scriptures, the word fulfill or complete, same basic word. And so we take and understand that when John uses this word three times, twice as a narrative, and once, as we see today, quoting Jesus, there's some importance to it. The word that is used in, for it is finished is one word in the Greek. It was translating whatever Jesus said in the Aramaic. John used it is tetelestai. And I know you don't like you know, going into Greek, and I, I get that, but it's just an important word. The fundamental root, teleo, which is the verb, means to bring to an end, to finish something off Totally. It's written in such a way in, in the Greek language is to speak of the permanence of the act. It's something that is done completely. It can't ever be changed. 
And in doing so, it's written in such a way also as to speak to the passive nature of it. In other words, it's not something that we bring about. It's something that the Lord had brought about. It it was completely done, finished, put to an end. The word teleo, or or telos, end, uh, is is used a lot in in the New Testament uh, in different capacities. It's it's a very vibrant, it's it's a very important word. Uh, In Matthew 5, 48, for instance, um, at the Sermon on the Mount, about the third of the way through, uh, at least by chapters, Jesus uh, said, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That word perfect is the noun telos. And we sometimes get the idea that he's talking about sinless perfection, which we can never accomplish. But if you understand the word and you understand the context of everything, having just told people who were to be his followers, having described what his disciples were to look like, saying it's not enough not to commit murder, don't hate people, it's not enough not to commit adultery, don't lust after people, make your marriages whole, let your word, yes be yes, your no be no, uh, go the extra mile, love your, love your enemies. He said, do all this so that you could be Tell us, you could be complete, a complete Christian, a whole Christian, a finished Christian. It's not that you're perfect without sin, it's that you're complete as a follower of Christ. In Luke chapter 22, verse 37, uh, right in the time of, of going to the cross, Jesus says, in order that the scriptures might be fulfilled, that he talked about himself being numbered with the transgressors and numbered with the sinners dying on the cross for us. The idea of the scriptures, which is the Old Testament, being fulfilled is to be completed, that they would come to their end conclusion. In the book of Revelation, chapter 22, verse 13, Jesus says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. I am the beginning and I am the end, the finished product. So it's this vibrant word that has the idea of being complete. But it's not just that in the New Testament we see this word uh, used in everyday Greek life, which can kind of shed some light on it as well. So I'm going to talk about that just a little bit. Um, when, when they wrote the New Testament, they wrote in what's called common Greek, in a, as opposed to classic Greek, which you might study sometimes in school, or you would see in plays or in classical writings. Common Greek was just everyday Greek. It was just the, kind of the street language that they used. Uh, I come from Texas down in uh, South Central Texas, San Antonio. And, and so there's just some things common to the way we talk. For instance, you know, when we talk about a group of people, uh, we might say you, we would, you know, might say you all, we would just say y'all, you know, y'all do this, y'all do that. In other parts of the country, they would say use, like use guys. I guess that's a Yankee thing. Well, if you're in Texas and you use the term use guys, you ain't from where we're from. You know, we know that. And, and where I come from in Texas, uh, if we want a soft drink, we would say, hey, uh, would you get me a Coke? And they might say, what kind of Coke? And I'd say, I want a big red. Well, you know, to us, Coke is just a generic term. It means some type of soft drink. Uh, when we come, where I come from, when we talk about barbecue, we're talking about brisket and sausage, maybe some ribs. So I might tell Debbie, I say, honey, I'm going to get some barbecue. She understands I'm getting briskets and ribs, brisket and ribs, maybe a brisket and sausage, maybe a couple of ribs. In other parts of the country, barbecue is Pulled pork, whatever, whatever that is. And I, I'm sorry. I, I, there's just a thing. Pulled pork is so dry, you have to get sauce to pour on it to make it tasty. And, and I, you know, a good brisket never needs sauce. Now, I, I realize that some of you from that part of the country right now are doing something you can't do if you were here. You're muting me. Uh, maybe you're leaving. That's just a point that I want to make. So, you know, in Texas, we understand what good barbecue is. If you're from other parts of the South, at least you know what barbecue is. If they're from the North, they, they, are, they have no clue. I don't even know what to say. 
And I don't even know where I am in my sermon. Oh, yeah, common everyday language. And so the common Greek is what they, what they spoke. Now, in the New Testament, you know, we, we have, I say we, we collected over 5,800 different fragments or, or whole parts of the New Testament, maybe a New Testament book, a New Testament letter, or part of it. There's 5,800 Greek fragments. It's an amazing number. If you would do some research, you would see that there's no other document that comes close to the pure volume of, of text that can go back as far as the New Testament can to the original writings. Uh, and we also, though, have a lot of just everyday writings. People would, would uh, write a letter. They might uh, have a receipt, the notional correspondence. And in those everyday writings, one of the amazing, thing is, uh, amazing things is that we have, um, we have almost every Greek word in the New Testament found there. In fact, there are only 50 words in the New Testament that we have not found in these other common everyday Greek writings. Now, what's important is the word telos, or teleo is one of the most common words found in all these writings. And it brings out from these other Greek uh, communications some of the vitality of this word. And let me just give you three examples. For instance, uh, there, there was found a, a, a Greek promissory note. A promissory note is kind of like an IOU. And uh, it, it, it was somebody owed somebody some money. And when they had paid off the money, the, the person who was owed the debt wrote tetelestai, the same word as it is finished, saying it's been paid in full. You don't owe any more money. So if one of his relatives had been found and said, hey, you know, you owed my dad some money, my dad's passed, you've got to pay us, the person who owed the money could hold up the note and say, no, it is finished, it's completed, I owe nothing. Now, here's the thing. At the cross, the death of Christ paid the sin debt in full. You thought about that? I mean, when, when we say it is finished, Jesus is saying the debt that is owed for sin has completely and totally been paid. Another example of using the word teleo uh, to, to finish is, is found in a, a deed, a transaction. Someone was trying to purchase some property. And so in the process of purchasing that property, over time, they had to come to an agreement. And so when they came to the agreement, here's what they did. They wrote down the date, and then they signed their name, and they transferred the deed. And when they did that, they wrote, it is finished. The transaction is finished, and now the deed is in effect. The land has been moved over. But put it this way, at the cross, the death of Christ put salvation into effect. I mean, when Jesus died, salvation became real for us. It is finished. A third example is, is found in a father who wrote a letter to his son. His son was off uh, on, on, a, on a job for his dad doing some business. And his dad wrote him a letter and said, Do not come home until your mission is finished, completed. In other words, you've got to do what I sent you to do before you're allowed to come home. And, and think of it this way. At the cross, the death of Jesus, the death of Christ, accomplished the mission of Christ. So I mean, it, when you look at Taleo, here's, here's what I see. You see that God had something for Jesus to do. To come to this world, he had a purpose, a mission. He came. And that mission is to bring salvation to us. And to bring salvation, he had to pay for our sin. And he did all of that. And so Jesus cries out, it is finished. It is done. There is nothing left to accomplish. So it's just... Amazing victory. You see, when you understand that at the cross, the death of Jesus accomplished his mission, then you go on and this is what you see. 
And this is what you begin to realize when you cry, uh, call this out. That the, the cry, it is finished, is, is not a cry of agony or failure, but a cry of victory. It is finished was not a cry of agony. It was not a cry of failure. It was a cry of absolute victory of Jesus. And think about it just for a moment. Sin is our great enemy. It is sin that separates us from God. It is sin that causes us to be in debt. It is sin that keeps us from worshiping the Father. And the sin debt he paid. Jesus at the cross, when he died there and said, it is finished, he, he, defeated, he defeated death. Later on in, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul would write this letter. And, at the, you know, and, and he would write in 1 Corinthians 15, he would write to the church of Corinth, he would write, he was talking about the resurrection of Jesus. He would say, death has been swallowed up in victory. Death has been completely swallowed up in victory. And he says, death, where's your victory? Death, where's your sting? It's not there. It's gone. Because Christ defeated it. Christ, Christ defeated, completely defeated Satan. Satan is the great enemy of God. He is the great enemy of all humanity. And while our sin is personal and, and we're responsible and accountable for the sin of our life, we understand that that force, that opposition against God is Satan. And Jesus completely defeats him. He has no power over Christ. I mean, it's just this amazing realization of all that Christ has done. It is finished. So what, what all did really Christ finish? What all did he complete? What all did he bring to a conclusion. Uh, last week when, when I was preaching and talking about the suffering of Christ, and, and it says there, so that the scriptures might be fulfilled, and he quoted from Psalm 69:21. I thirst. And, and Psalm 69 is a psalm of David, and he begins by saying, God, just save me, because he's being oppressed by, by his enemies. And, and that whole psalm is just a psalm of, of, of David's feeling the pressure, feeling defeat, feeling failure, and calling out to God. In many ways, Jesus claimed that. And, and, and what we talked about was Jesus fulfilling what all Scripture was supposed to be. And so one of the things that, that really helps is just to kind of understand is what we mean by this. The, the, the Scriptures that are talked about are, are, are the Old, what we call the Old Testament. It's all they had. And it's so important. Those, those, those writings were, were so important to, to Christian, early Christianity because that's all, all they had. They didn't have the New Testament books yet. And, and so bringing all that to a conclusion, you need to kind of understand what the Old Testament really is. And I've said this many times. The Old Testament is a book of promise. It promises something. The New Testament is a book of fulfillment. Many of you, when you read the Old Testament, you, you get so frustrated, you get bogged down in it, you're reading it, things don't make sense, things are confusing, the things, uh, God's from the opposite of what you've been told, and, and you get caught in all that, but you've got to take a step back and say, hey, all of this Old Testament is pointing to something, to someone, that's Jesus. And so if you look at the Old Testament as a book promising something, which is how the New Testament authors looked at it. It's how the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John looked at it. it. It's how Paul looked at it. It's how Peter, it's how they looked at it. It's how we need to look at it. Here's what we see. We see that all that was promised in the Old Testament about sacrifice, the constant need to sacrifice for your sins. You know, daily, you know, people would come to the temple and they would sacrifice for sins. Um, once a year on the Day of Atonement, they would have the great sacrifice. All of that has been finished. All that's been accomplished in Jesus. There's no more need for any sacrifice. He is the Lamb of God that was slain for all of us. The book of Hebrews says there's no need for any more sacrifice. It's done. 
When you think about all that the prophets uh, talked about when, when they wrote about the need for a Messiah, for a Savior, the coming day of the Lord, Jesus completely fulfilled all that. When, when you think about what was written uh, in the law about bringing us to God, you realize Jesus satisfied that. Moses was the great lawgiver. He, he pointed to Christ who was to come. Abraham. And God said to Abraham in Genesis 12, the whole world will be blessed through you. How is that going to happen? Through the people of Israel? No, through Jesus, the Messiah. Even if you go back to Genesis, when, when sin occurred, and, and, and God says, you know, that the, the, the serpent would strike the heel of the seed of, of, of the woman, but the woman's seed would crush the head of the serpent. Is a, a picture of what is here at the cross of the victory. Jesus in Matthew 5, 17 said, I did not come to do away with the law and the prophets, or the Old Testament. I came, I came to fulfill it. That's a different word to fulfill, but it means to bring it to light. I came to show you what is meant, and that's exactly what he did. He is the fulfillment of all of that. And he is the fulfillment because of God's great love for us. I love Romans 5, 8. Romans 5, 8, Paul says, God showed his great love for us. While we were still in the process of sinning, Christ died for us. It is finished. Christ is the victor because of the love of God. In fact, here's the thing about the death of Jesus. His death demonstrated the enormity of man's sin and the enormity of God's love. I mean, we, we are sinful people. Our sin is enormous. That's what the death of Christ shows. God in the flesh had to come and die for us. John 1, he begins in the very first verse by saying, in the beginning was the Word. The Word is Jesus. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. Then the Word became flesh. Verse 14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus had to come because of the enormity of our sin and because of the enormity, the hugeness, the vastness of God's love for us. And so what we have to see is when he says it is finished, he did everything God wanted. The cross it was, was victory was certain there. But there's a second thing I want you to see, and it's this. At the cross, God showed us he loves us. He does. He showed us he loved us at the cross. Probably the most famous New Testament verse is John 3.16, for God so loved the world. But you really need to read John 3.16 and 17 together, for here's what it says. For God so loved the world, the world being humanity, especially humanity, even humanity in opposition to him, that he gave his one and only son, that is Jesus, that anyone who might believe at any time, who might have faith at any time in Christ and Jesus, would not perish, in other words, would not have to suffer as Christ did for an eternity when he suffered on the cross, like we saw last week, but would have eternal, everlasting life. Verse 17 says this, For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but the world through him might be saved. Because he loves us. Here's the thing. God's love moves him to save us, not condemn us. And yet we have this idea, where do we get this idea that God somehow wants to condemn? I mean, it's sin that condemns us. It's sin that separates us. It's sin that puts us in that position. It's not God. God loves us and saves us. But yet we have this mindset. I was, I was watching, um, last night I was watching uh, the latest Star Wars movie. It came out, you know, and I have it now on, on, on my, some movie thing I have. And it's The Rise of Skywalker. And uh, the end of The Rise of Skywalker is very similar to 
um, the third Star Wars movie. Now, I'm old school, so when I say the third Star Wars movie, I'm talking about the order they came out. I'm talking about the Return of the Jedi. I know some of you say that's, you know, that's uh, the sixth Star Wars movie. Well, you know, all you millennials who think it's the sixth Star Wars war, you're just flat wrong. It's old guys. Understand, it's the third one. It's the order they came out. It's how it's written, how it's supposed to be. And in the third one, he does to Luke the same thing in the last one he does to Ray. Now, if I'm spoiling the end of it for you, then too bad. You should have already seen the movie. And here's what happens. Emperor, the great Emperor Palpatine is just, he's taking his hands and he's zapping them. You know, he's, doing, he's just zapping. He's zapping Ray in the last one. He's zapping Luke in the third one. And he's just zapping them and he's enjoying killing them or trying to kill them. There are people who have the idea that that's what God's like. Well, that's crazy. God is nowhere near like that. God is, God is not zapping us. God is, God is not just striking us down. God is in the process of saving us. That's why Jesus came. Just think through the series that I've just gone through in the first five, first five weeks. In week number one, Jesus is being crucified. They're driving the nails in his wrist. And he says, Father, forgive these people. Forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. For the people that are killing Jesus, he's saying, forgive them. And then as he's hanging on the cross, everybody's mocking him. Everybody's cheering him and sneering at him, even the thieves. And one of them comes to his senses and says, you know what? <clears throat> you know, we deserve to die. He doesn't. And then with the worst case of faith ever, and I have said this numerous times, this is the absolute worst faith you'll ever see, but it's enough faith. He says, Lord, remember me. And Jesus says, you'll be with me in paradise. He saves him. And then he looks at Mary, his mama. And he looks at the beloved disciples, John, and as he's dying, he wants to take care of his mom. So he says, woman, behold your son. And then he says to John, behold the woman, take care of my mama. I mean, you see the forgiveness of Jesus, the salvation of Jesus, the love of Jesus. And then two weeks ago, as we saw him cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God had forsaken Jesus. Jesus was experiencing separation from the love of God and experiencing the judgment of God and suffering for our sins and paying the price. He died on that cross, and while he was hanging there, he suffered an eternity's worth of punishment, of separation for sins he didn't commit. And then last week, we saw the suffering of Christ as he took all that upon himself. That wasn't because God wants to condemn us. It's because God loves us. And here, just seconds before, as we'll see next week, when he gives up his spirits and says, Lord, Father, into your hands I can give my spirit, he says, it is finished. You see, when Jesus was through doing everything he needed to save us, he cried out in victory, not agony, victory. It is finished. When he was through, he did everything he needed to save us. It is finished. All that is left is the resurrection. And that's not in Jesus' hands. That's in the Father's hands. And listen, nothing's going to stop the resurrection. I mean, you read over in Matthew that they were worried the disciples might steal the body of Jesus so the Jewish rulers had, a, had the Romans put a rock to try to keep Jesus in. That ain't stopping him. They could have put his body in the ocean. They could have cremated him. They could have done whatever they wanted. God was raising Jesus back up. The man couldn't stop him. Satan couldn't stop him. The resurrection was guaranteed. Everything was done that needed to be done. And that was victory. You know, at the end of World War II, when we had won in Europe and we had won over in Japan, Americans celebrated. Oh, man, they celebrated. 
they had parades. Soldiers came home, and, 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 the, and their families picked them up, grabbed them, and hugged them. And it was just a great time of celebration. And we celebrated because, because we won the war. We were the victors. And at the cross, we celebrate because Jesus won. He is the victor. As I said earlier, when, when Jesus won, we won because sin was completely paid for. And all that was left was the resurrection. And that was guaranteed by God. I remember a long time ago I heard someone say, everyone is going to spend eternity somewhere. I've never forgotten that. And I, I think about that when I think about so many people that I know that don't know Christ. and Some of you who are watching, you don't know Jesus. Everyone's going to spend eternity somewhere. Where are you going to spend it? Do you, do you really want to spend it having rejected Jesus to live in your sin? Do you really want to spend it having to pay for the sins he's already paid for? Do you really want to spend eternity separated from the Father and separated from his love when Jesus did that for you? Don't you want to spend eternity in victory? Don't you want to spend eternity with the Father and celebrating the salvation that Christ provided? To do that, all you have to do is trust Jesus with your life. Just take your life and give it to him. And you can do that right now. I mean, you're, you're in your home most likely right now, wherever you're at. You, you can just right now. You don't have to be at church. You don't have to come forward. You can just where you are, give your life to Christ and say, I trust you with my life. I, I want to be saved. Then one of the things you can do if you want to talk to someone is in a moment, there's a number going to pop up on the screen. You can text respond to that number. And we have some of our pastors here, and they'll get with you immediately. They'll get back to you immediately if you text respond. Or if you want, just talk to somebody right now. Maybe you want to email us. All our email addresses are at fbclascruces.com. You can email email us at info at fbclascruces.com. Or if you want a pastor, it's the pastor's first name. First initial, the last name, like Joe A. It's the simplest to remember. But listen, we want to talk to you. We want, we want to help you and connect with you. Now, maybe you know, some of you who already followers of Christ, or a lot of you are just, you're living with this time of, of the coronavirus, and, and it's so frightening, and I get it. And, you're, and, and I understand the fear, and I understand the uncertainty. Remember this. Jesus had victory over sin. <laughs> he had victory over death. He had victory over Satan. He has victory over this. So no matter what's going on and how uncertain you are, you trust him. Put your faith in him. Here's the thing. Christ died so that we can have victory. Today, why don't you experience that victory? So, Father, I thank you. And I love you for what you have provided for us. And so, God, I just pray in the name of Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit, that the people who are watching, who are listening, that they will experience victory. The victory that comes through the cross of Christ. And if they have never trusted Jesus to be the Savior of their life, that today, at this moment, they will take their life and give it to Jesus and experience the victory only he can provide. And I pray this for your glory and honor. In the name of Christ and through the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen and amen.